One of my favorite Instagram accounts is this account called Worship Fails. Has anybody heard of this account before? Okay, three of you. Awesome. Some of the leaders. Maybe you have got to check it out after. And why I like this Instagram account so much is because what they put, as the title hence says, is they put clips where people are leading worship at different churches and something goes wrong. So some could be like someone singing in a mic and then the mic just falls off. There's times when like someone's playing piano and the piano just collapses to the ground. And they're like, what do I do now? And there's other ones where like half the band starts in like one key and the other half starts in a different key and they all come in at the same time and it's just like the most beautiful thing you've ever heard in your life. And it's just all these clips, one after the other, of these mess-ups and these mistakes that happen. Make sure you check it after. It's awesome. There's also clips of it on YouTube where, man, it's very entertaining to watch, but it is one of the most painful things to listen to, especially when the band is not on the same cues, and they're doing different things, and then they all come in thinking, oh, we're half doing this, half we're doing that, and it's just like, and it's like, wow, what is going on? Pretty crazy. We know from whether it's listening to music or listening to the worship, the good thing that takes place when all the musicians of the band are on the same page, when they're all working together, all seeing the same cues, all in the same key, all together. But you see the big consequences that happen where even if just one musician, if that electric guitarist comes in with a, with a lick in the wrong key, how awful it sounds and the big mistakes and the big effects where it's like, oh, I do not want to listen to that, do not want to hear that at all. Same thing is true for us as believers. We're all to be united and together on the same page. We're to be cohesive and work together like a unified band, like an orchestra, like a worship team, all together. And if we're not, you're going to see that we sound like a non-cohesive band. It's going to sound all out of tune, not how it's supposed to be. If we're not united like a worship team working on the same page, not only are we not going to be effective individually because we're going to be caught up with a bunch of drama if we're not united, but also there's going to be consequences for us as a group. If we're not united as believers, we're not going to be effective in doing the work that God calls us to do in his word. So as we're going to see today, the passage calls us to be unified, unified like a worship team, like a symphony, all playing the same notes. But how are we to do that? Let's look at Psalm chapter 133 to see the answer to that question. Open up your Bible, Psalm 133. It's the longest psalm in the Bible. No, three verses, but an impactful three verses might be a little confusing, but hopefully we can tie it all together. How can we be united as a church? How can we be united here in the narrow? How can you be united with your small group? How can we be united for the sake of Christ? See what Psalm 133 says, as the title says, when brothers dwell in unity. And then right underneath there, it says, a song of ascents of David. This is one of the songs that would be sung by the Israelites as they're coming together to, to the center city, Jerusalem, during these certain feasts. So they'd all be coming together, singing these songs. There's a bunch of songs, the ones right before Psalm 133 and a couple after, these songs of ascents that they'd be singing out together. So picture as all these people are coming together, they're singing this song together. Song of ascents, as they ascend, why is it called ascent? Jerusalem's at the top of a, top of a hill. So all the way up the top, as they're ascending up to the top, they're singing this. What are they singing? says this, verse 1, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So when brothers come together 
are united, have the same goal in mind, is described in two ways, how good and pleasant. And maybe at first glance, you think those are just kind of synonymous for, oh man, he just repeated himself, like how good and how great it is. But I think there's a slight distinction between the two. When it's talking about the benefit and how good it is for us to be united, the word good conveys the idea of this is how it's supposed to be. This is God's duty for us is to be united. It's what is right. It's what God requires of us. But then this other word, how pleasant it is, conveys the idea of that's how we want it to be. It's something that we should desire, something that we would delight in. So not only is unity something that God commands of us, that it's our duty to be united, but also is something that we should delight in. We should be happy about. What should we be happy about? When brothers dwell in unity, when we're all on the same page, when we all view God in accordance with how scripture calls us to, when we all live in accordance with how the Bible commands us, when we're all united on that front, how good and pleasant it is. Then we see a couple analogies given that describe unity. So the first one's in verse two. Unity, says a good thing, pleasant thing. Unity, it is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. So unity here is described, it's just like oil being on the head, dripping down the beard, and then Aaron, the high priest, running down the collar of his robes. You're like, oh yeah, I see how unity is like that. Yeah, that makes sense. How unity is like, you're probably like, what? that doesn't make any sense at all. How is unity like oil on someone's head, like running down? It's like, what are we talking about here? When we think of oil and how it's used in the Bible, oil is a sacred and a special thing. And when they bring up Aaron here, Aaron, who's the great high priest, he is someone who was anointed. This process of anointing was something that was done for prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament. And this anointing, they would pour oil on the head of this individual. And specifically for Aaron, the high priest, the great high priest, head of all the Levites, would say, hey, we are commissioning you for the duty of leading the worship at the tabernacle and then over into the temple as the Levites progress. You were to be the head worship leader of the worship. So oil, picture it, on Aaron's head, and it's clearly a lot of oil. It's not just like, oh, we're just going to pour a little bit, because it goes down on his head, and it runs down on the beard. So it's like, oh, man, it's like he's getting a shower of oil. Runs down on the beard, and it goes even further, running down on the collar of his robes. Some people think it's, you know, the top, the collar part, what we would think is the collar, but I think it better talks to the end of the robes at the bottom. So they're pouring a bunch of oil on the head of Aaron. This extravagance of oil conveys, I think, a couple things. When we think, okay, how is this oil, precious oil, that's put on the head of Aaron, how is that connected with unity at all? Doesn't seem to make sense. Well, oil is a sacred and a holy thing. It's a special thing. Well, similarly, when we are united together for the sake of Christ, that is a special thing, something that the rest of the world cannot be a part of. Also, when we think of the intention of this verse, we see Aaron here has a special significance, that the unity among us is supposed to be centered around the worship. So as Aaron is the great high priest, the leader of the sacrifices, as they're all coming together, remember hiking up this mountain, they're supposed to be thinking, hey, we are united and we are going to Jerusalem here all together to worship the same God and Aaron, the great high priest, is the one 
setting the scene for the worship. Oil is a sacred, it's a holy thing. Also, the excess amount of oil, I think, also conveys an idea. So the amount of oil, a lot on the head, dripping down the beard, dripping down on the robes, this excessive amount of oil is like, wait, why didn't you just need a little bit? It's like, why did you dump a bunch on his head? Was it because Aaron was super great? Aaron was awesome, so we just had to pour a bunch on his head. I don't think that was the reason. Aaron, just a normal guy, was called by mission for God. It seemed as if this was just an excess amount put on his head, something that was undeserved for Aaron. Hey, you don't deserve all this oil put on your head, but guess what? God is pleased with you, so we're just going to put this excess on your head. We think about this and tie it into unity. Unity is something that is undeserved by us. Unity is something that when we are united in Christ, it's all centered around Christ and not around ourselves. Something that is undeserved. So when it describes unity, it's a special, it's a sacred thing, just like the oil. It's something that's not deserved by us. In verse three, we give another analogy. Unity, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So here now it makes the analogy of unity is like dew on this mountain. It's like, oh yeah, that makes sense too. It's like, oh wait, that doesn't, how is unity like dew on Mount Hermon that then goes onto the mountains of Zion? Think a little bit about what the purpose of dew is or what dew does. Dew is a life-giving agent. Think of this Mount Hermon, which is further up north in Israel, was this snow-capped mountain. So there's a lot of water, a lot of snow up there. Now, if we think further down to Mount Zion, Jerusalem, it was more of a rugged terrain, a lot drier. And so this dew that is on Hermon, which then falls on the mountains of Zion, is this purpose of refreshment, this purpose of bringing life down to Zion. And we see this connection later in the verse. Why is the significance of Zion here in verse 3? Zion, also Jerusalem. It says, for there, which is Mount Zion, the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. That through this mountain, God is going to give a blessing that is going to lead to life forevermore. Maybe in, in your mind, it harkens back to the Old Testament, God giving the Abrahamic covenant to, Ab to Abram. And he says, hey, Abram, I'm going to promise you three things. I'm going to promise you land. I'm going to promise you a great many children. And also that through you, all the descendants of the earth will be blessed. One of the descendants will be blessed. Here we see that this blessing is going to come through Zion. If we now think about the New Testament and Christ coming, Christ came down and died right outside Jerusalem on the mountain of Zion, and he came to bring us life. He came as the way for us to be not separated from God, to be united with him. This unity that now we can have with God the Father and also unity with others who are children of God. So we see unity described in this chapter as a good thing. We need to see the benefit that comes from believers being united in Christ. What's the good that comes? Well, first it pleases God. Just like oil is something drenched on someone's head, if you were to smell Aaron, he'd have a certain scent to it. It'd be like this pleasing aroma. This thing that you would smell would be like, wow, he smells good. He doesn't smell like a junior hire at 
you know? Winter camp who just sprayed a bunch of axle over himself. It's like, oh, that doesn't smell good. But it's like, no, a pleasing, good aroma. Similarly, unity is something that pleases God. Also, unity is something that should bring us joy. We should be delighted as believers to know, hey, we are united with others who have the commonality of Christ. Unity also builds up the church. It also magnifies Christ to the lost. When we are united, we can have such a great impact, just like a worship team united can make and sound really good. But because it is good and pleasant as described in verse one, we must be careful not to create division between us, but rather we need to seek out unity. For point number one, go ahead and write down, we need to protect the unity of the family of God. Protect the unity of the family of God. Verse one, it is a good, God desires it when we are united. It's a pleasant thing. We should be happy in this commonality that we can have with other believers. Pleasant when brothers dwell in unity. What is it talking about here with brothers dwelling in unity? Is it talking about, okay, I've got a younger brother named Josiah. Is that when me and my brother are united together? Is that what it's talking about? Familial context? I think there could be a little bit of that. Think about it. How good would it have been if Cain and Abel remained in unity? Would have been pretty good for Abel. Um, Also for Cain, because Cain got cursed. It would have been a great thing for them to remain united. But is it only talking about the familial context? No, I think it's beyond that. Because in verses two and three, it talks about this corporate worship that's centered around Aaron the high priest. As we all worship together, the same God through these sacrifices in the Old Testament, that unity together. The context today, it's us as believers. That commonality in Christ, the same God that we worship. We are called the family of God. God our Father, we can look around to each other at this room and say, hey, if you're right with God and I'm right with God, we're brothers. If you're right with God and I'm right with God, you could be my sister in Christ. You could be my brother in Christ. That's why you oftentimes hear, you know, pastors say that, like, you know, like, good morning, brothers, or so if you're talking to a bunch of guys, like, what's up, sister? You know, this, it's like we're a family. We're close-knit. We're supposed to be together. John 1, 12 and 13 talk about that. It says, but to all who did receive him, who received Christ, who believed in his name, trusted in Christ, he gave the right to become children of God. So everyone who is a believer is right with the Father is a child of God. And we have this connection that the world cannot experience, this oneness because of our relationship with God the Father. And because of this relationship, we're to be united together, just like a family. Unfortunately, today, maybe you think of your family and you might say, but my family is not very united. Me and my siblings, we fight all the time. My parents are divorced. When my extended family comes around to talk, it's like, okay, we're cool with them, but we're not cool with them. Or like, oh man, we can't talk about certain things when our family's all together. And because of this uh, discord and, and this, non, this divisiveness among our families, I think it impacts how we view brothers and sisters in Christ as a family of God. Whereas the ideal family is one that is united. God gave father and a mother and kids to those parents to all be connected together, to be united. 
not to say, oh, we're going to split off and do our own thing. Similarly, as the family of God, we're all to be on the same page, united in how we view God and how we live out Scripture. Got to be united. There's to be no division in God's family. 1 Corinthians 1 is one passage I want you to turn to that talks about that exact thing. 1 Corinthians 1, 10. Seems like this church in Corinth had, in Corinth had some division. They're kind of making sides and making teams like, oh, you're on that team and I'm on this team. When in reality, Paul needed to rebuke him and say, hey, you're actually all on the same team. 1 Corinthians 1 in verse 10. Paul says this, says, I appeal to you brothers. There we see that word again, brothers. Does that mean they were biologically his brothers? No, but that family unit, family of God, appeal to you brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Stop making divisions. Stop making these separate teams. Verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. So I don't know, Chloe just came around and said, hey, I heard there's some division and told him that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. So making these distinctions, oh yeah, I'm following you know, Paul and the way that he leads. Oh no, I follow Apollos and the way he leads follow Cephas, I follow Christ. All these divisions. Verse 13, he says, is Christ divided? Is he divided? No, Christ isn't divided. Was Paul crucified for you? Did Paul die on the cross for the Corinthian church? No, he didn't. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, Christ is not divided, so neither should we be. As Paul seeks to guard against the division of the Corinthian church. We also need to guard against the division that could exist at our church, the division that could exist within the narrow. Maybe your application of 1 Corinthians 1 would say, oh, I follow Darcy's small group. I follow Nick Barnett's small group. I follow Lewis's small group. I follow Francesca's small group. And it's our small group against all the rest of the small groups. Yeah, this is our team. Is Christ divided? Did Lewis die for you? No. Maybe in Hunger Games a little bit. No. (laughs) Or (laughs) at Revival. But he didn't go to Revival. Juan died for you a little on Revival. No, he didn't. Christ isn't divided, so we should be united, not make these divisions between us. But this unity... In Christ doesn't just mean us in the narrow. Think about the church at large. Are we huddling over here and saying, oh, yeah, we're great here in the narrow? Or maybe when you go up to True North, oh, man, yeah, yeah, narrow stinks. Or when the seventh graders come up to the narrow, oh, I don't want anything to do with you guys. It's like, are we creating these divisions when we're supposed to be united? How can the narrow be united with the rest of the church? Not just say, oh, those are older believers. I don't really want to get to know them. No. How can we be united all together? We be united in Christ. We need to protect against the unity, against disunity that can easily entangle ourselves, these disagreements that take place. But maybe you think, is that even my job? Is it my job to protect about the unity? Okay, yeah, maybe Pastor John, 
you know, maybe my leader's job to guard against you, but is it really even my job? Imagine your parents go out for a nice dinner date and you're left at home with the rest of your siblings. And as you're at home, parents are gone away, your siblings start getting in a fight with each other. And they get in an argument with each other. And you're watching TV, I don't know, like whatever you watch on TV, sports or something. Um, Shark Tank, I've been watching some Shark Tank recently. So, oh, nice, respect. Um, you watch some Shark Tank and your siblings are fighting a little bit and you're just sitting there, you're like, it's not my job. I'm not, I'm not the parents, not my job to deal with it. I mean, when your parents get home and say, hey, so what happened? And then your siblings are just upset at each other. It's, hey, what did, what did you do? Josh, what did you do? Uh, not just pointing at Josh. It's like, your parents are gonna say, what did you do? Did you step in? Oh, well, it's not my job. To, to agree, your parents are gonna be like, you should have stepped in. You should have helped out with that. Similarly, when there's division within the church, we need to try to fight against that. Try to keep people united together. We need to have this care for each other. I think it's oftentimes our selfish and prideful attitudes that cause us to just focus on me. And if those people over there are fighting, it's not my problem. They'll figure it out. Rather than saying, I care about those people so much, I don't like seeing them fighting. I don't like seeing this division, these grudges that they're holding with each other. I'm going to step in. We need to keep our eyes out for those who are divisive, for those who try to sow division. Well, what would they be doing? If I'm looking around at the narrow and saying, okay, someone's being divisive, someone's trying to cause disunity, what am I supposed to even look out for? Romans 16, 17 and 18 talks about this. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, once again, brothers referring to body of believers, what you're supposed to do is to watch out for those who cause divisions, people that try to divide people. Even more than that, try to create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. So people not only try to, oh, cause conflicts between people, but also these people who are promoting things that are untrue about scripture, who preaching things that are contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Taught by who? Taught in the word. Watch out for that. People that try to divide. People that preach false doctrine. It says avoid them. And verse 18 says, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They're saying, what should I look out for? People that are divisive, okay, they're saying wrong things about scripture. Also people that are egocentric, all about themselves. They're just trying to serve their own appetites. End of verse 18 says, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Try to flatter others. It's all about me. Focus on themselves. Oh yeah, the Bible's not actually true right there. We need to watch out for those things should be about unity. Last thing on this point, should there be ever a reason why we create division? Would there ever be a reason for us as believers to say, actually, we need to be divided? Well, we just gave one, we just talked about one. If someone's in the church causing conflict, causing problems, teaching things that are contrary to scripture, we're supposed to cut them off. Romans 16 says to avoid them. Get them out of the church. They shouldn't be a part of it because ridding the church of people that are harmful to it actually creates unity and not division. People who 
promote false doctrine, people that are unrepentant in their sin and undergo church discipline. Yeah, we're supposed to divide from them because that unrepentant attitude is going to seep into the rest. Even non-Christians at church supposed to be united as the family of God. Well, how close and connected should we be with non-Christians? Well, our unity is in the family of God. And if you're not a child of God, how can we have and be united together? Got to be united as a family. Verse 2, we talked about the significance of the oil and how it's precious, how it's valuable, how it's rare. It has a good scent to it. It's pleasing. Smells good. Just like unity is pleasing in the sight of God. It's sacred. It's holy. It's distinct from the rest of the world. The rest of the world doesn't have this unity that believers have. But even more, in the second half, it centers on Aaron too. Look down. On the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Aaron, the high priest, supposed to conduct these sacrifices at the center of the worship. And think about, you had the regalia that the high priest would wear, and they had the 12 stones on the chest. Remember that? And as that oil drips down from the head, down to the beard, drips onto the stones and all the way down from the head to the toe, shows this oneness that the oil brings all across. And even amongst the 12 stones, I think it signifies and alludes to this oneness that they all, and what's this oneness that they have? The oneness they have is this unity in the same God, worshiping the same God. That's what they have in common. It comes down to, hey, they follow the Old Testament law and they're gonna stick to it. That's what's most important, that they have the same worship and the same God. Well, if we think about us today, what's most important about us? If you're a Christian, the most important thing about you is that you have been bought by the blood of Christ. As believers, our greatest commonality is our union with Christ. And that supersedes any type of earthly distinction that we can make with each other. Point number two, we need to value commonality in Christ over common interests. We need to value commonality in Christ over common interests. What does this mean? Think about those who are closest to you, your closest friends. Think in your mind, who are those people? And then number two, ask yourself this question. We'll answer this in small groups. Why are they the closest ones to you? Oh, well, you know, we both like basketball. We both like video games. Or we both like anime, if you're kind of weird like that. Not to take a jab or anything, sorry. It's like we got this common interest, so that's why they're my closest friend. Well, as we think through our friendships and who we should be friends with, we should funnel it through what does the scripture say about who should be our closest friends? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 6 can be applied to a lot of situations in our lives, whether it's businesses, marriage, but I think it also applies to friendships as well. 2 Corinthians 6, who should our closest friends, our closest acquaintances be? Verse 14 says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Right there. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Okay, what is doing the right thing 
What connection does that have with doing the wrong thing? No connection. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Uh, no connection. What accord has Christ with Belial, devil? What accord? No accord. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? No portion. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? There is no agreement, one or the other. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He says, hey, closest friends, those you closest you should not be unbelievers. Shouldn't be. Or there's business relationships, marriage, dating relationships, friendships. If you're a Christian, closest friends should not be non-Christians. But me and my friends, we have like the same interests. And like all the, my, the people that I know at church, we are completely different from each other. If you look back at the imagery of Psalm 133, I think we see this imagery of things that are far apart being brought together. Like the head and the beard of Aaron and the color of his robes are brought together by the oil. The dew of Hermon, Mount Hermon, which is a couple hundred miles away from the mountains of Zion, this big distance brought together is this dew. So things that are different are brought together through the same thing. Same thing should be true with Christ. Whether you have no common interests with other Christians and the one thing you have in common is Christ, that should supersede everything else. Can't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's like imagine you were going to buy your first car. Your first car. You happened to get it early in eighth grade. Eighth grade, your first car. I don't know where you're going to drive, but one of those kid cars that, you know, they like drive in. No, a nice car. You're going around, and this guy sells you on this car. It's, man, it's the exact car that you like. You look at the outside, the, the perfect color. You're like, oh, nice. Yes. It's like, oh, man, it's, maybe it's like a Tesla or something. It's like a white Tesla. You're like, oh, man, yes wanted a Tesla. Or let's pick an option. Let's go like Lamborghini. It's like, oh, I got a Lamborghini. Sweet. And like, I wanted it purple. So it's like, yes, it's a purple Lamborghini. I don't know why I want that. If you're like, man, I want that. That'd be sweet. It's like super nice. It's got like the exact steering wheel that you want, all the cool features about it. You're like, it's perfect. And the guy's like, oh, there's just one, one thing about it. Like it doesn't have an engine. <laughs> just a small minor detail. It's like, what? <laughs> it's got all these, oh, these nice aspects about it. It doesn't have an engine. What? It's purposeless. It makes no sense. Why would I buy it? There's no purpose. Similarly, it could be really nice, and it would be really nice if other believers have the same interests as us. Other commonalities, oh, we both like this, and we both like that. But even if your non-Christian friends have the same interests as you, if they're not right with God, they're unbelievers, it's like a car with no engine. Well, it doesn't make sense. It's not, right. it's not how it's supposed to be, to be united with non-Christians. Our relationship with unbelievers should be that of evangelism, sharing the gospel with them, to see them be brought into the family of God, to be connected together. Not only is it not right, it's actually damaging for you to have that close relationship with a non-Christian. A passage I'm sure you all know, 1 Corinthians 15, says, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Oh, uh, they're not going to pull me down. They're not going to really impact me. I'm sure, you could talk to 
Pastor John or other leaders who see year after year, people get caught up with non-Christian friends, worldly friendships. Slowly you see them not want anything to do with Christ anymore. It's a sad thing. We need to see how important it is. And in the Old Testament, they took it very seriously to be connected with other believers. You know how extreme they took it? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 13. The commandment of God was, hey, you need to be serious about worshiping the one true God. You shouldn't surround yourself. That's why he didn't want them intermingling with these other nations. These other nations that would worship the false gods. It's like, I don't want you tempted to do that. I want you to only be worshiping the one true God. Deuteronomy 13, verse 6, it says this. This is how extreme they took it. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, or your, your wife you embrace, or your friend who as, as your own soul entices you secretly. So if a close friend of you entices you, and what do they say? They say, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the peoples who are around you whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other. They say, hey, let's go worship this other God. Ah, forget the God of Israel. Let's do our own thing. Verse eight says, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal or hide him, but you shall kill him. What? Your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death and afterward, the hand of all the people. Whoa, calm down. It's like, he was just an atheist. Like, he just was a, a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness. This is how serious in the Old Testament, they said, don't have anything to do with unbelievers. And while we're not obviously called to do the same thing in the New Testament, how serious do we take these close friendships with non-Christians? You see it as a big deal. You take steps to cut it off. It must not be united, even if our common interests, oh, we have everything in common. If they're not a Christian, being right with God, that commonality overrides all other common interests. It's the thing that unites us all together. Verse three, back in Psalm 133, talks about the dew. This dew that extends all the way from Mount Hermon all the way down to the mountains of Zion, this long distance all brought together. Difference in geography, but also brought together by this dew, this refreshing, this good thing that comes from these snow-capped mountains all the way to this dry area. And then it focuses in on mountains of Zion. Because from Mount Zion, the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. That just as dew is a life-giving agent, so too is Christ who came and it's the blessing that came to Mount Zion to give life everlasting. That's what we need to keep as our focus. That our unity, what brings us all together, is the unity in Christ. The blessing that the Lord has brought from Mount Zion. Christ dying on the cross for our sins. That's what unites believers together. Now, when should we think about that? When should we think about our commonality in Christ? Well, all the time. But when is it most difficult for us to 
Think about that. It's when there's problems, when there's arguments, when there's disagreements. Point number three, you need to remember your oneness in Christ when conflicts arise. Remember that we are one in Christ, even when there's arguments, even when there's disagreements, even when there's problems that come, you need to think back to, hey, we're one in Christ. This isn't gonna divide us. This isn't gonna split us apart because we're one in Christ. If we do what verse one says, dwell together in unity, this means that we're gonna get to know each other. It's not like, oh, you're going to stand over there and I'm going to stand over here. And yeah, we're united. We don't know anything about each other. No, unity means you really get to know each other super well. And the more that you get to know someone and the closer you get to someone, the more time you spend with someone, the easier it is for small conflicts to arise. I've learned this firsthand in moving out with a couple roommates. Got a couple roommates. And the more time I say that you spend together, the easy for conflicts to arise. You know, when we moved out, the first like couple weeks, it was like, oh, we, were, we would hang out t- together, you know, talk. It's like, oh, things are great. Like, yeah, man, this is going to be the easiest year ever, a year lease. It's going to be a breeze. Like, we're going to have no conflicts at all. But then a month goes by, and then we're going into month two, and it's like, all right, who didn't replace the toilet paper? It's like, come on. It's supposed to go over, not under. Who, who did that? That's not right. Or we had a big conflict about like which way the spoons are supposed to dry, whether it's like face up or face down. And it's like, it's obviously supposed to be face down. Face up, it leaves a little spoon water. We had, well, anyways, we, it leaves a little mark in the bottom. No, it's not good. We also had a, a disagreement about like, you know, when you put the laundry detergent in the cup and then you pour it in, whether you're supposed to throw the cup in with the wash or not. So it was like, it's like, yeah, it's like, these conflicts. And just by getting to know each other and spending more time, it's like, oh man, these conflicts that say, what is happening? You know, we got these disagreements just by spending more time together. Other ones, well, who's not doing their chores? Who's leaving the lights on? Why are we throwing floss picks in the toilet? It's like, we're not supposed to be doing these things. And we've got like all these different conflicts that are coming together. Now, we wouldn't have had those conflicts if it's like, okay, you're still going to live at your house. I'm going to live at my house. Oh, yeah, we'll see each other once a week. But the more you get to know someone, the easier it is. And more often spending time together, it's like, oh, man, you've got these minor disagreements. So how can we not let these disagreements divide us, split us apart? It's easier when we spend more time together for disagreements, but also the greater the opportunity for us to solve them and for us to come out united We live in a culture that when conflicts arise, we just quit. Just quit. Marriages, if there's a conflict, give up. Families, oh, conflict between families, we're not going to hang out anymore. Friends, you did something that wronged me, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. It's a quitting culture. But how can we, when we have these conflicts with one another, not say, oh, I'm done, because that's division, but now actually resolve these conflicts together? Matthew 5, 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So I quickly want to run through just a couple things really quick on how we can deal with conflicts and arguments. First thing I want you to write down is we need to be quick to overlook wrongs. Be quick to overlook wrongs. Proverbs nineteen eleven says, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. When someone does something wrong, 
towards you? Do you blow it up and make it a big deal? Or you might say, oh, that's okay. I'm just going to let this one pass. It should be our glory to overlook an offense, to overlook when someone wrongs us. You want to think about a simple way to stay away from conflict? Overlook an offense. It's going to happen all the time. But also, it takes wisdom to decide, okay, is this something that I should overlook or is this something that I should bring up? Well, if you decide, hey, man, this is actually something I need to bring up. Second thing I want you to write down, don't blow up in anger. When conflicts arise, do not blow up in anger. James 1.19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. If you come to your friend with this conflict and you're really upset, it's only going to escalate. They're going to get angry. Probably you've seen this firsthand. Get upset. When conflicts arise and you bring it up to a friend, are you quick to hear their explanation? Or are you quick to, oh man, how do I respond to this to show that they're still in the wrong? Third thing to write down. If you bring it up, you need to confront humbly and lovingly. Confront humbly and lovingly. Ephesians 4 talks about this unity and this humility and gentleness that we're supposed to have. If we come when there's conflict to our friends and we try to come humbly, not say, hey, I'm better than you, I know more than you, and lovingly, hey, I care about you, this is why I'm bringing it up, not to judge you, just to say, hey, this is important for us to talk about. It's gonna be a better way in resolving conflicts, not making them blow up to a bigger thing. Last one, write this down. Be quick to forgive, not hold grudges. Be quick to forgive, not holding grudges. Ephesians 4, verse 32, says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We've been forgiven so much. If you're a believer, if your trust is in Christ, you've been forgiven much by God. How much more can we forgive others if they come and ask for forgiveness? Don't let petty disagreements lead to disunity. You need to be united. You see the good that comes from believers being united in Christ. And I know the world is divided in so many ways. And at a point, it's this division where it's like, if I disagree with you on something, we can't even talk about that anymore. We can't even discuss it. We're just going to be so polarized and, and different, whether it's politically or sports teams or with families. All these conflicts are rising. But the Bible says that the church can stand out and actually be a greater lamp for God by displaying unity, by saying, hey, we're, our commonality is in Christ. Because of that life that we have in him, we're all together as a team. We'll be more affected to stand side by side for the sake of the gospel. John 17 talks about that. May we strive towards that end, being united, not here in the, only in the narrow, but the church and the church at large across the world. Let's pray. It's God, we ask that we wouldn't be people who are quick to cause conflict, quick to cause disagreements. Help us to look out for those who do so. Help us rather to be united with those who are believers in Christ. God, even for those who aren't right with you, I pray that they would realize that life is found in Christ. And to be a part of the family of God, you need to turn and trust in Christ. I pray that as a result of this sermon and through these small groups that are now going to be had, that we would see the narrow be a more uniting place, Compass Bible Church being united as a team, 
striving side by side for the sake of the gospel and for your glory. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.